Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that we can give our daughters everything they need to grow and learn. But not every child can focus on classes and play dates. Nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. face hunger. That's one in six. School lunch might be their only meal each day, and it's heartbreaking to imagine any child going to bed hungry. We're dreaming of a perfect day when kids can smile, play, and just be kids without worrying about where their next meal will come from. Feeding America is working to make that perfect day a reality. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. That food is given to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about doing things that make an ordinary day extraordinary. Learning to play an instrument, building a sandcastle, hosting tea parties. Hunger should never be an obstacle to growing up. You can help end childhood hunger in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Oh my God, it gets so hot here. That's why I love 007 Air. They keep me warm in the winter and very cool in the summer. Go to coolingvegas.com right now, coolingvegas.com. For residential or business, they do it all. Go to coolingvegas.com right now, coolingvegas.com. With a 10% discount for first responders, go to coolingvegas.com, coolingvegas.com. 007 Air, license to chill. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the following program are those of the program's participants and do not necessarily represent those of station staff, management, and advertisers. They were there when history was made. Rackham Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Rackham Tour. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James at the buzzer! The Sports Rackham Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run. Go crazy. Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports Rock and Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half century or so of American sports. We are right at the finish of the Major League Baseball regular season, and of course, if your team is heading to the playoffs, you're thrilled. But if that team didn't make it, it becomes another case of wait until next year. And that's always difficult, especially in one of those years when it looked like it was your team's year. Today's show is the story of one of those years of a franchise that suffered for decade after decade until recently. It's funny how time slips away and you forget about things. For all the Chicago Cub fans out there, we know you talk about 1969 where the Mets, the Miracle Mets came around, disappointing season for the Cubs. The Actually, though, the season that followed, 1970, is even more interesting. And we've got our good friend Bill Bike back. He wrote a great book about this called The Forgotten 1970 Chicago Cubs. Go and glow a history of the Chicago Cubs 1970 season. And Bill... 
I love this book because I didn't realize it. And I was around at that time, but I did not realize how much promise there was on that Cubs team, how much disappointment. It, it really was a really fascinating year for the Cubs. Oh, absolutely. You know, after uh, they didn't make it in 69, uh, the players actually issued a statement, probably written by the Cubs PR department, but the players definitely backed it up saying that they really couldn't wait for 1970 to start because they intended to win the whole thing in 70. And um, they had the uh, the same lineup coming back pretty much. So they had a uh, bunch of Hall of Famers, Billy Williams, Ernie Banks, Fergie Jenkins, Ron Sano. Uh, the Chicago media figured that the Cubs were the, the best team in baseball. One of the uh, reporters, Rick Talley, uh, for the Chicago Today newspaper, had called them the best team in baseball, kind of figured that uh, they'd beat uh, whoever uh, was the American League champ that year. So, yeah, people were uh, actually expecting a world championship banner to be flying over Wrigley Field that year. You know, the interesting thing, too, is the Cubs were not known as a spend-free uh, organization and so forth. But that year, too, they were making trades left and right, which we'll talk about as we go here. That wasn't the normal Cub approach, was it? Absolutely not. Basically, the the Cubs were uh, a pretty conservative franchise uh, Back in uh, 1969-70, they tended to like the type of players who had the uh, the short haircuts and no facial hair. And so uh, they made uh, a bunch of moves in 70 that were like nothing they ever made before. Well, they started out getting Johnny Callison, who was a very good player from the Philadelphia Phillies in a big trade. That was in the offseason. Um, and again, that looks... To me, on paper, like they were just adding more to that big lineup that you talked about earlier. You know, the problem with that trade, you know, they, they made some great trades that year. They made some bad trades that year, too. And so they were pretty set in their outfield. They had Billy Williams in left. They had Jim Hickman in right field. And Jim Hickman had really come on the previous August. In fact, the nickname in the Chicago media for him in late 69 was the Guns of August because he kept hitting home runs in August and really – really earned that right field job at the beginning of the 69 season. Actually, uh, Al Spangler was their right fielder, but uh, Hickman took over, and so he looked uh, pretty solid as the right fielder. And right before the uh, August 31st deadline for bringing up players who could play in the offseason, they brought up Oscar Gamble. And if you remember Oscar Gamble from the 70s, he was uh, a player who was the top player for the 19. 77 White Sox uh, Southside Hitman team. He was the best uh, hitter on the team. Um, he also had some great years for the uh, Yankees. So they looked to be pretty set. And so they made a, a trade that, uh, although Callison was a, a solid player, it created some problems because suddenly they had two right fielders. They had Callison and Hickman. And uh, then they had no center fielder. And so, you know, they, they got Callison, who was a solid player, but that, that deal was kind of a head-scratcher because they not only traded Oscar Gamble, who looked to be their center fielder of the future, but they traded one of their starting pitchers, too, in Dick Selma. So it's kind of an odd trade in yeah. that you uh, trade your best rookie and one of your starters for a guy, really, who was on the downside of his career. So that was uh, one of the trades that they made that year that uh, I really didn't like too much. Well, yeah, and I know DeRocher had the problem you were talking about, is, well, how do I make this work? We're loaded with outfielders. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. It strikes me as one of those typical situations where you're looking like at the back of a baseball card. Wow, look at all the home runs this guy hit and so forth. But it's not just about statistics. It's also about who's going to fit in. And uh, like, you're, like you're saying here, they took away some valuable uh, pieces of that great team. 
That's exactly it. And uh, Dick Salmo was a fan favorite. You know, that's not necessarily why you should keep a guy, but he was a very effective fourth starter in, in 69. And in 70, uh, when they traded him to the Phillies, the Phillies decided to uh, use him in the bullpen, and he was actually one of the top relief pitchers in the National League in 1970. And, and this is important because if the Cubs had kept him for 70, the Cubs' bullpen faltered that year. Their closer had been uh, Phil Regan for the, the last few years, the vulture. And uh, Regan, after having a good season in 69, really faltered in 70. And so Selma would have been a, a great guy to be able to rely on uh, in the bullpen in 70. But as you say, they, they kind of looked solid, and then they uh, created some holes. I mean, another problem was they ended up uh, at the beginning of the season putting Jim Hickman in center field because they had Callison in right. Of course, they were going to start him in right because they traded for him. But you had a really slow outfield. I mean, Hickman was a right fielder, and so uh, there were a lot of balls dropped in in center field that Oscar Gamble would have caught if Hickman wasn't out there. Now, Hickman was one of my favorite players, and he had his uh, career year that year. He had 315. Uh, he made the all-star team that year. But uh, he really wasn't a center fielder, and so uh, they had a solid lineup, and then they created some holes, and that was kind of a head-scratcher. One other bad thing happened in spring training, and that was uh, catcher Randy Hunley, who was a good catcher. He got hurt there. He had uh, season-long injuries. And in fact, Rocher said that he felt it cost him 10 games in the standings. Was he that important to the team? He absolutely was, because he was a great handler of pitchers. So, you know, Randy had some years where he only hit, like, maybe in the, the 230s, 240s, something like that. So... It wasn't necessarily for his bat, but he was such a good handler of pitchers. He was uh, Leo's field general because he could tell Leo if a, a pitcher needed to be taken out, if a pitcher still had his good stuff. He could settle the guys down. He was really, really good with Fergie Jenkins. And so uh, Fergie always said that Randy was his favorite catcher, absolutely bar none. And without Randy for the first half of the season, uh, Fergie was uh, under 500, and so uh, wow. once Randy came back, Fergie regained his, his uh, usual form, and he ended up winning 20 games just like he always did. But uh, if Randy would have been gone the whole season, I think Fergie wouldn't have won 20, and if Randy would have been there the full season, I think uh, Fergie would have done uh, a lot better. And, and, yeah, you know, the way that Randy could settle down all the pitchers, I think uh, I agree with Leo that uh, Randy would have been worth about 10 games. And add uh, 10 games to the, to the 84 that the Cubs won, that would have put them at 94. The Pirates won the division that year with 89, so the, the Cubs would have won the uh, division uh, kind of easily with Randy Hundley behind the plate. More with Bill Bike, author of The Forgotten 1970 Chicago Cubs, Go and Glow, in just a moment. Remember, all of our interviews can be found on Apple iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to like Sports Racks on Facebook, Sports RACX, and we're going to be offering some exciting giveaways very soon. You're listening to Sports Rock and Tours with Stephen Maggi, coast to coast on the Talk Media Network. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? 
go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com. Have your collectibles taken over your house? Well, maybe it's time for those treasures to find a new home. And I've got just the place to help you do that. The place to go is Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads, where they are always buying. Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads has over 35 years of experience buying collections of sports cards, memorabilia, bobbleheads, toys, action figures, comic books, Hot Wheels, Star Wars, movie posters, and more. If you've collected it, there's a good chance they'll buy it. No collections are too large or too small. Call Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads at 310-534-4180 or text them pictures of your collection. That number again is 310-534-4180. That's 310-534-4180. Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads, 310-534-4180. The following is made possible by Dad. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling all over it. (laughs) The Dad Joke. Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. Why do you have to be careful when it's raining cats and dogs? Because you might step in a poodle. (laughs) And kids that spend more time with their dads grow up to be smarter, more successful. Can I tell you a cat joke? Just kidding. (laughs) And with any luck, funnier adults. Why didn't the skeleton go to the dance? Because he didn't have any body to go with. Dad jokes rule. So take a moment to make a moment and give your kid a laugh. (laughs) It's as easy as going to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. (laughs) That's really funny. Do you need to sell your home? If you've sold a home before, you remember how stressful and expensive it was. Sold.com is here to help you sell your home for the most money and with the least amount of stress. There are new ways to sell your home that you've never heard of before. Did you know there are companies who will offer you cash for your home? Did you know you could trade in your home for a new one? Did you know there are realtors who will sell your home for a flat fee instead of an expensive commission? It's true. Sold.com services are free. So if you're looking to sell, make this free phone call right now and learn how your next home sale can be faster and easier than you ever thought possible. Pick up your cell phone and call right now. 800-948-6826. Again, that's 800-948-6826. Now, let's return to Sports Rock'em Tours. On Talk Media Network, here is Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Bill Bike, author of the forgotten 1970 Chicago Cubs, Go and Glow. 
Well, let's go month through month because Cubs get off to a great start in April, twelve and three at one point. Uh, that's a good start. They they acquired Steve Barber. It was from Baltimore, as I recall, right? That's right. Yeah, and Steve Barber. That's that's a key trade. Now Barber didn't really do that well for the Cubs that year. He was zero and one. He had a high high ERA, and uh, they let him go in uh, late June. But the key to that is. He was the first of many players they would acquire that year who had kind of a bad boy reputation. You know, Barber had the reputation with Baltimore as kind of, you know, being a partier. And those were the type of guys the Cubs always stayed away from. And their acquisition of Barber early in the season showed people they were going to do whatever it took to win. And they didn't really need the guys who, you know, had the crew cuts and drank milk. They were going to take anybody, you know, they could get who could help them out. So April... They started out on the road in Philadelphia and Montreal, um, you know, kind of weekly. But then when they came home to Chicago, they won 10 in a row in Chicago. They won number 11 in Pittsburgh when their new fourth starter, Joe Decker, who took Selma's place, uh, pitched a one to nothing shutout. And so they re- looked really good in, in uh, April. And then in May, same thing. They were sailing along really strong. And the biggest thing that happened in May, on May 12th, uh, Ernie Banks hit his 500th home run. So... April and May were two really good months for the Cubs that year. Yeah, that was exciting. And, you know, you remember guys like Banks, like Billy Williams, Ron Santo. These are great ballplayers. That really was a good team. But I want to ask you about something. The fans were going a little crazy at that point, too. Throwing garbage on the field, they ended up having to make a change at Wrigley. It was. It's very unusual to make a change in the dimensions of the field during the season, but that's what happened at Wrigley Field that year. And the previous year... Um, the bleacher bums, but some other people, too, you know, had started throwing a lot of garbage on the field, jumping on the field, particularly the last game of the season in 69. A whole bunch of people just jumped on the field and, uh, you know, ran across it. And the outfield walls at Wrigley Field at the time actually had a flat surface. So in 69, you could see some replays where, you know, guys would be dancing on the wall and stuff like that. And, and that was kind of okay if they kept it, uh, you know, in the bleachers. But once they started jumping on the field and throwing garbage, it was a little different story. So in 70, they still had the 69 dimensions, the flat wall in the outfield, no basket, and things got kind of rough out there. There were a lot of fights. There were a lot of people jumping on the field, a lot of garbage being thrown on, on the field. And we were seeing that at all the older ballparks in that era, Philadelphia, Cincinnati. Fans were getting to be kind of rowdy. And so... Wrigley Field, Mr. Wrigley had always called it beautiful Wrigley Field, and so he had a decision to make. Was he kind of going to go with the way things were going in, in the other ballparks where they were just kind of letting stuff go, or was he really going to you know, do something to keep it to be the, the family-friendly, beautiful Wrigley Field? So after the first homestand where there had been a lot of fights, people jumping on the field, throwing garbage on the field, um, Mr. Wrigley actually got permission from the National League to change the dimensions of the outfield by putting the basket in. And the basket uh, angles out uh, about three feet, so it, it makes it a little little easier to hit a home run, but it also caught all the, uh, the debris that people were throwing on the field. They also put a concrete triangle on the outfield wall top so people couldn't walk at it anymore. Um, they beefed up security. Uh, they started hiring uh, Chicago police officers to be security. And so basically... They kept beautiful Wrigley Field to be the friendly confines because they made it a lot more secure place. I mean, it was, it was such a family-friendly place then. Uh, when you went to Wrigley Field back then, 
you know, that when you when anybody hit a pop up, even you know, you'd hear all the the kids screaming. I mean, it was really a kid friendly place. They had Ladies' Day on uh, Friday, and so the moms would take the kids to Wrigley Field. Uh, my mom took me all the time. Uh, the other moms, you know, took us kids too, and so we went to Wrigley Field all the time on on Friday. And so Wrigley Field stayed beautiful. Wrigley Field stayed the friendly confines because. Mr. Wrigley decided to make those changes at midseason. Yeah, you got to give him credit because it's unusual to have a stadium make changes like that while the season's going on. You can see that in the offseason and making the changes. So uh, he took that seriously. Absolutely. And, you know, once they put the basket in, people were worried that uh, Ernie might get his 500th home run uh, in the basket, but that didn't happen. He hit a, a legitimate shot to uh, left field, and uh, so all was right with the world when uh, Ernie Banks hit his 500th homer. So April and May are great, right? And then we get right at the end of May in a crummy trade. You know, you talk about good trades and bad trades. Uh, Ted Abernathy, a good reliever for Phil Gagliano. And I remember having a baseball card of him from the Cardinals. Uh, that was just one of those bad trades that really ends up hurting them, right, by losing a reliever of uh, Abernathy's quality. Absolutely. That might even be worse than the, uh, the Gamble trade, because at least with Gamble they got Callison, who was uh... – uh, a player that they could use. Uh, they traded Ted Abernathy, who had been uh, a top reliever, 65, 66, 67. So the Cubs really had a deep bullpen then, although Leo didn't like to use it because he kind of managed the way he did in the 1940s. He let the, the starters get a complete game as much as possible. But but Phil Regan, the vulture, had already shown by that time that he just wasn't doing the job. And so the, the trade of Ted Abernathy who had been a top reliever for Phil Gagliano, a reserve infielder, was just inexplicable because the Cubs already had Paul Popovich, who was one of the top reserve infielders in the National League. They had guys in the minor leagues, a fellow named Terry Hughes, who was just itching to come up. And so it was just an inexplicable trade. The the little bit of a rationale, back then uh, players would uh, do their National Guard duty during the season. So you would see a lot of players just have to... Uh, go away for two weeks while they were called up to the National Guard. And so Don Kessinger had some National Guard duty coming up. So they made the trade for Gagliano, never used them because they always played Paul Popovich in, in Kessinger's spot when he was gone. And Gagliano ended up hitting 150 for the Cubs. In the meantime, um, so Ted Abernathy went to the Cardinals. They didn't really know how to use him, so they traded him only a couple weeks later to the Kansas City Royals where he became one of the top relief pitchers in the American League in 1970 and again in 1971. So had they kept Ted Abernathy, you know, you talk about Randy being worth about 10 games, I think Abernathy would have been worth at least 10 himself because they just had no bullpen the rest of the season. We've got more trades to come in that we'll cover, but is part of this just that the desire to win may be stoked by what happened in 69 so much that you're trying to buy, and when I say buy this thing, I don't mean the way like with free agents now, but you're just trying to do whatever it takes if you just get that one guy to make the, make it to the top, and maybe a, a, a pat hand might have been a better way to go. I think a pat hand would have been a, a better way to go, and actually would have helped them uh, for the rest of the decade, too. You know, the Cubs traded several guys that year, a fellow named Boots Day, a fellow named Gary Justet. Now, these are not Hall of Famers, but these were guys who ended up being uh, starting players for other teams in the National League throughout the 1970s. And so what we saw after the 1973 season is that the Cubs, you know, really ended up, you know, being a doormat in the National League in the 1970s. And if they would have kept some of these guys 
like Jestat, like Boots Day, like Hector Torres, who had some good years uh, for the Astros. Uh, I think they would have done a lot better in the 70s than they actually ended up doing. In a moment, more with Bill Bike, author of The Forgotten 1970 Chicago Cubs, Go and Globe. And remember, make sure to like Sports RACX on Facebook. We're going to be offering some great giveaways very soon. You are listening to Sports Rockin' Tours with Steve and Maggie nationwide on the Talk Media Network. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Peter Fonda, scion of Hollywood royalty, is probably best known for his Captain America, the hippie on an existential quest in the early indie film classic Easy Rider. 28 years later, he quietly re-emerged as a Florida beekeeper in Yuli's Gold, which earned him an Oscar nomination. Yuli Jackson is a moral, self-sufficient man who runs a business producing golden, world-renowned Tupelo honey while raising his two granddaughters by himself. Their mother, Helen, is addicted to drugs, and their father, Yuli's son, Casey, is serving prison time for robbery. Yuli's quiet world is shattered when he finds he must save Helen's life by retrieving her from her enablers, Casey's partners in the robbery. In so doing, he discovers Casey has hidden their loot. His former partners in crime want it back, and they will kill the children if Yuli doesn't find it for them. Yuli's gold is an almost forgotten little gem in which we feel the slow pace of life in hot, humid central Florida and learn a lot about bees, rich honey, and human nature. Like the best of films, it reveals the inner workings of complex characters. There is atmosphere, danger, redemption, and a love story where long-closed hearts may yet be opened. Indie Film Minute, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. An adult elephant can weigh up to six tons. The average person, 150 pounds. Ever heard of carfentanil? It's a large wild animal tranquilizer. Illegal drug dealers lace heroin with it. It can kill the average human. If you or a loved one is addicted to opiates, even pain pills, don't wait until it's too late. Call the Detox and Treatment Helpline now. We care. Many of us have been where you are. We'll take you or a loved one away from the drug environment to a place you can clean out safely. Plus, we'll work with your insurance company to make sure you get the treatment you need. And with a Family Medical Leave Act, you're allowed by law to get away for help without telling your employer why. Call now to save a life. 877-927-3380. 877-927-3380. That's 877-927-3380. When you go to Las Vegas, you have to know what you're going to go see, and there's no better place on the web to go than VitalVegas.com. You hear Scott Robin, our Vegas insider, every week. What are people going to find when they go to your site, Scott? Everything you need to know about Las Vegas, from shows and restaurants and a lot of inside dirt that you won't hear anywhere else. And a lot of photos, too, and a lot of snark, right? That is the case. (laughs) Yes. You can't miss it. VitalVegas.com. 
So are you tired of being tired? Well, then it's time to get the tea. Hey, it's Lisa here to tell you about this all-natural, all-organic tea I've been drinking that has had great results for over 20 years. It's called Life Change Tea, and it's specially formulated to help detoxify and cleanse your kidneys, liver, colon, and blood all at once. The colon is one of the most ignored organs in the human body. The faster that waste is eliminated from the body, the less time that waste sits in our intestines, spreading toxins to our bloodstream. This tea helps cleanse chemicals caused by outside intruders from our entire digestive system. And get this, weight loss can be a side effect. And with continued use of the tea, you can experience clear, healthier, younger looking skin, increased energy, and a happier outlook on life. So if you're tired of being tired, get the life change tea at getthetea.com. That's getthetea.com. And like me, you'll be glad you did. This is Sports Tours on Talk Media Network. Now, here again, Stephen Maggi. Welcome back to Sports Tours. You are listening to Bill Bike, author of the forgotten 1970 Chicago Cubs, Go and Glow, and the winner of more than 50 awards in journalism, publications, media relations, and alumni relations, including three Peter Lissagor Awards, the top honor in Chicago journalism. Well, June was the start of uh, the bad times. 12-game losing streak, including five to the Mets, which really hurts, knocks them out of first place. And then the controversy starts brewing with uh, Leo DeRocher. He's got apparently some sort of post-game show or something of that, an evening or an evening radio show. And the media were ticked off. They thought that uh, he was keeping stuff for the show. And, and that got in the way of things for no reason, right? It really did. You know, it's, it's an odd thing to say that a 12-game losing streak was caused by the manager's radio show, but it, it kind of was. And so what happened during that streak, and the Cubs were sailing along in first place. They were about four and a half games ahead at the time. And Leo had had, had, had this radio show from the beginning of the season, no problem. But it was in June when he started, as you say, keeping information from the media and keeping information from the players just so he could reveal it on his radio show. So literally, you know, at the press conference after the game, Reporters would ask him questions like, you know, are you planning any lineup changes? And he would say, well, I don't know. And then two hours later on the radio show, he would reveal, you know, during during that 12-game streak, he revealed that he was planning on sitting Ron Sano down for the, for the next two games uh, that were coming up. This was news to Sano. Sano was actually sitting at home, listening to the radio, eating his dinner when he found out that he was going, wasn't going to be starting the next two games. Same thing with a couple of, of players Steve Barber, who you mentioned before, and a rookie named Jim Dunnigan. Uh, Leo didn't bother to tell these guys that he was going to send them down to the minors, but he did reveal it on his radio show. So you had the players going crazy because they never knew what they were going to be hearing on the radio show. You had the media going crazy because, you know, they couldn't do their jobs because Leo wasn't, you know, telling them what was going on. And really for the first time you got serious criticism of Leo DeRocher in the media. Now the year before, he'd gotten a little bit of criticism when he lied about taking a day off and he went up to Wisconsin to uh, visit his uh, stepson's uh, summer camp. And so he, he took a, a day off and, and lied about it. And so, you know, the media kind of criticized him a little, but they laughed it off because the Cubs were eight games ahead. So really, he took a day off. Who cares? But, but in 70, this was the first time he started getting serious criticism. 
and, you know, the press actually wondering, you know, is he getting to be a little bit senile? I mean, the man was in his, in his 60s, and, and that was kind of old back then. And yeah. so the media was kind of wondering, you know, is he getting senile, and, and why isn't he telling us anything? And, and the players were up in arms. And you put all that together, and uh, a 12-game losing streak was the result. Like you said, in five games in there were to the Mets at Wrigley Field, and the Cubs lost all five games. Yeah. And it was one of those series, if the Cub pitchers did well, you know, then their their hitting went to sleep. If the Cubs scored ten, ten runs like they did in one of those games, then the Mets scored twelve. And it was just there was there was one game in that series where at the end of the game the the pitchers and the catchers actually weren't even using signs. The pitchers were just pitching the ball because they were thinking that the Mets were stealing their sign, and it was an absolute disaster. I got to ask you one last thing about DeRocher. Uh I don't know, uh, radio, especially back in 1970, it didn't seem like he could make that much money on it. Why was that so important to him? It, it's really kind of strange. Well, you know, uh, the players and the managers weren't really making that much money to start with. Uh, I don't know exactly what uh, Leo was making with the Cubs uh, that year, but uh, a radio show, you know, particularly a five nights a week radio show, I don't know exactly what he was making, but uh, it was an important supplement to his income. So he didn't really want to give it up. But uh, when all that controversy happened, you know, he, yeah. he said that he was giving it up, you know, on his own choice. But I, I kind of think Mr. Phil Wrigley had a little bit to do with that. Wow, it shows you how popular we're got. He's got a five-day-a-week show. Wow. How about that? <laughs> Something. Well, okay. So they, they also, another one of these trades. And again, it's that same thing as a guy that had a reputation of a problem. And that's Milt Pappas, uh, who was a good pitcher. But it sounds like the like attitude or team chemistry kind of went out the window in the sense of that wasn't the, the reason they were getting who they were trying to get. Right. They were just looking for the best players who were uh, available. And uh, Pappas had done well with Baltimore. He bounced around a little bit, Cincinnati and Atlanta. And Atlanta wasn't using him. So actually, early in the season, uh, Pappas went up to Leo when the Cubs were in Atlanta and uh, told Leo that he'd love to come to the Cubs, which is kind of an unusual situation. I think they call that uh, tampering, you know, yeah. <laughs> where you know players not really supposed to tell the other manager, like, yeah, I'd really like to pitch for your team. But that's what Pappas did. And uh, Blake Cullen, who was an official in the Cubs' uh, front office, he had been with the Atlanta Braves, and so he knew that Pappas could still do the job, even though uh, the Braves weren't using him anymore. And so um, Decker, who I mentioned was the fourth starter, uh, he won that one to nothing shutout against the Pirates uh, in April, and then he never really did too well after that. Uh, Decker uh, ended up with a 2-7 and seven, uh, record that year, and so the Cubs needed a fourth starter. Pappas was available, and that was uh, another one of their great trades that year because Pappas really settled the rotation down. He was a terrific fourth starter. Billy Williams said that uh, when Pappas was in the rotation, they never had to worry about pitchers from the other team throwing at them because Pappas was the type of guy that would throw at your head. And so, you know, they yeah. knew that uh, Pappas was going to have their back. And so the, the players really just felt a lot better with Pappas on the mound. And uh, he ended up winning 12 games that year. He really solidified that rotation. You know, now another interesting thing, uh, oddly, that 70 uh, rotation of Fergie Jenkins, Ken Holzman, Bill Hands, and Milt Pappas, uh, if you look at the VORP statistic, value over replacement player, it's actually one of the top 10 uh, starting rotations in the second half of the uh, 20th century. So nobody really thinks about the 1970 Cubs. You know, they think about those great Braves rotations with, you know, Greg Maddox in the 90s. Right. But, uh, you know, the, the 
kind of forgotten 1970 rotation of the Cubs was a very, very good one. And so, you know, Pap has made it complete. Well, yeah, you know, you mentioned Ken Holtzman, and I remember as an A's fan, when he came to the A's, he might have been the difference for them going to the World Series. This guy was really good, you know, and we didn't know much about him other than he had, you know, decent stats from the, from the Cubs. Yeah, well, you know, because the Cubs never made postseason play, you know, people didn't know that much about Holtzman, but he threw two no-hitters for the Cubs. He threw one in uh, 1969 when they were about uh, nine and a half games ahead in August. He threw another one uh, for the Cubs in 1971, and he, he had another good season in uh, 70. He won 17 games, and Holson, when he was with the Cubs, was good for about uh, 17 a year, which would be a fantastic number these days. Oh, I mean, a lot, a lot of guys don't win 17. And then when he came to uh, the A's, uh, and again, he, you know, with, uh, with Raleigh Fingers coming out of the bullpen, you know, Holson, you know, really he had a guy who could save the game for him. The problem in 1970 is uh, the Cubs kept trying, you know, guy after guy when uh, Regan faltered, and, and they just couldn't get that closer. So, you know, Holtzman and the other pitchers, they'd leave a, a game winning, you know, 3-2, to 10-8, to eight, something like that, and the, the arson squad had come in and just lose the game for them. So uh, I think uh, Kenny, with a, with a good relief pitcher like Ted Abernathy, you know, might have won 20 in 1970 as well. One of the guys that he did acquire to try to take care of that was Juan Pizarro, well-known for his uh, carousing and so forth. And Joe Pepitone they pick up, who was really popular there, but Pepitone had all those issues back from his days with the Yankees. With all that going on, you get to August, and they're still in the race. I mean, they, they, they're no longer on top, but they're close, and it's a three-man race as you go into, as you go into August. Yeah, exactly. They got Pepitone uh, at the very end of July, and so Pepitone had worn out his welcome in New York uh, with the Yankees, who had uh, a conservative management. Uh, unfortunately for Joe, they traded him to Houston, which had an even more conservative management. So a half season in Houston, and, and Joe was done. I mean, Houston didn't like him. He didn't like Houston. And so he was, you know, here's a top-quality player who was available. And so the, the Cubs snapped him up. And, again, not the type of guy they would have gotten even a year earlier. I mean, Pepitone had the really long hair, you know, which hardly anybody had in 1970. He had the really bushy sideburns. Again, almost nobody else, you know, had hair to that extent. You know, and he had the reputation of getting in fights. He was a drinker. He was a marijuana smoker. He was a playboy. If Ernie Banks was Mr. Cub, then Joe Pepitone was Mr. Anti-Cub. He was absolutely the type of player that they never would have looked at before. More in a moment with Bill Bike, author of The Forgotten 1970 Chicago Cubs, Go and Glow. Make sure to like Sports RACX on Facebook. We're going to have some exciting giveaways coming up real soon. You're listening to Sports and Tours with Stephen Manchie, coast to coast on the Talk Media Network. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. 
Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com. Know someone with a drinking or drug problem? Learn how to get sober after we share these stories. I was 35 with two beautiful children when my life and addiction started to spiral out of control. After my divorce, I went into a depression cycle and started drinking more often and using prescription drugs. After my second DWI and arrest, my ex-husband threatened to take our children away from me. I was 17 when I became addicted to heroin and meth. I thought I could quit on my own, but I couldn't. It hit me when I was arrested. Get sober now. Your private insurance may cover costs and we'll get you here. It's simple. Just call Elite Rehab Placement right now. Please, don't wait. Your life matters to us. 800-213-9264 Call right now before it's too late. 800-213-9264 Holy gentle giants dog food, Batman! I'm Burt Ward, Robin from the Batman TV series. I was the caped crusader and now I'm the canine crusader. After rescuing and feeding 15,500 dogs for 23 years, my wife and I created a natural, low-fat, heart-healthy, made-in-America dog food and special feeding and care program designed to help all dogs live amazingly longer, healthier, happier lives. Our dogs are living as long as 27 healthy, active years. Yours can too. That's twice their normal lifespan and triple for some breeds. Would you like your dog to live as long as 27 years and still be active and healthy? Gentle Giants Dog Food is complete nutrition for all dogs and puppies, all ages and sizes, and is different from other dog foods without the greasy coating and high fat content that can shorten your dog's life. Try our Gentle Giants life-enhancing dog food for the longer, healthier, happier life of your dog. You're listening to Sports Rock'em Tours. Now, here again is Stephen Maggi. Welcome back to Sports Rock'em Tours. You are listening to Bill Bike, author of the forgotten 1970 Chicago Cubs, Go and Glow. And Bill attended his first Chicago Cubs game on August 29, 1967, when his mother and another mom brought the kids to the game on Ladies' Day. So they got Joe Pepitone. He really got along with Leo DeRocher. You know, Joe said that Leo is just an older version of me because Leo was a ladies' man. He liked to have a few drinks after the game, too. And so those two guys really got along, whereas in uh, Houston, uh, Harry Walker was the manager, a very conservative guy, so Joe didn't get along with him at all. And so Joe joined the team in Cincinnati for the Cubs' first-ever games in Riverfront Stadium, and Joe won the very first game, got the game-winning RBI in the first game he played for the Cubs, uh, got another hit in the second game, and he really settled down their center field situation because what the Cubs had been doing, you know, like I said earlier with Hickman in center field, a lot of balls dropped in that shouldn't have dropped in. So the, the Cubs put Joe in center field. He's a guy who could really cover a lot of ground. He had a good bat, too. Uh, Ernie was uh, injured a lot at that point. He was, he was pretty old, so they moved Hickman over the first place, and suddenly they had a really set lineup, and they were in a good position to contend after that. And, and contend they did. They got through August, and 
into September is now a three-team, anybody-can-win-it type thing. So the Cubs decide, this whole year, all right, we're, we're going to empty our wallets. We're going to do whatever it takes. They get Bob Miller and Hoyt Wilhelm, two longtime good relievers, of, at least historically. And they add Tommy Davis. So it seemed like every team that was contending at one point tried to get Tommy Davis on there because he was a great hitter. But it didn't work out the way they wanted. What do you think? you think it was just one of those things that was in the, you know, in the cards or was it, um, you know, just they didn't not the right chemistry because they certainly looked like they had the personnel. You know, both uh, Ron Sano and Glenn Beckert, the the great second baseman for the the Cubs in that era, said that they both thought that if the Cubs had won in '69, they would have won in '70 as well. And I think it was the the monkey of '69 that was on their back that they were just worried about collapsing. The the Miller move and the Wilhelm move; those were good moves. Now. Wilhelm, he just didn't pitch that well for the Cubs, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Miller did, and Miller actually made the team in 71, and then they made one of their inexplicable deals again and got rid of Miller, and Miller went to the San Diego Padres. He was one of the best relievers in uh, the league in 1971, and so the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates in 71 picked him up for the stretch drive, and and he did great for them. And so, you know, these were a couple of good moves. Tommy Davis, uh, they actually got him to be a pinch hitter, but – Callison was in uh, Leo's doghouse by that time, so Leo just installed Tommy Davis in left field, moved Billy Williams over to uh, right, and they had a really good, you know, solid team, but uh, they just couldn't quite do it. They had a, uh, after some hot months, they had kind of a, a mediocre September. You know, they, they played okay, but uh, not quite enough to, uh, to do the job. They were actually in contention uh, up until the, the last Sunday of the season, the last weekend of the season. Uh, during the week that last week, they were going to go to New York. And so, really, they were they were still in it with uh, five games uh, left. And in 69, they had been elite, uh, eliminated a lot earlier than that. So, really, it was the latest that the Cubs were in contention since they won the pennant in the 1945. The Pirates won the Eastern Division, but then in the playoffs, they lost to the uh, Cincinnati Reds. Do you think that they could have gotten hot there and, uh, and won the National League and then maybe maybe even beaten the Orioles? I, I absolutely believe that, and I'm not the only one. You know, for one thing, um, the Cubs had a winning record against the Reds that year, and the Cubs had a winning record, uh, either a winning record or, or tied the Reds for, like, the next few years after that. So even Pete Rose, who really never liked the Cubs, I mean, he's, he's a guy who's always been happy to criticize the Cubs. Even Pete Rose says that for some reason in those years, the Cubs just had the Reds number. You know, they were, they were able to beat them when nobody else could. And if you look at the statistics, the, you know, even though the, the Reds were called the Big Red Machine that year and they won their division by about 20 games, but they had a, a weak division, whereas the Cubs, you know, they, they had a fight off the Pirates and the Mets, so they had an actually strong division. And so in reality, the Cubs that year actually scored more runs than the Reds did. So the Cubs had a, a better offense than the Big Red Machine, even though they're known for their offense. The Reds' starting pitchers, they had guys like Don Gullett. I mean, they, they didn't have anybody uh, close to the, the great four starters that the Cubs had. And so, uh, you know, a lot of experts believe that the Cubs could have beat the Reds in the playoffs and then gone on to Baltimore, where, again, the, the Cubs had actually scored more runs during the season than the Baltimore Orioles did. So it, it looked to be, you know, kind of a classic World Series with the great Baltimore teams of that era. You remember that they won the pennant in 69, 70, and 71. And, you know, the Cubs, 
you know, Leo DeRocher's Cubs against Earl Weaver's Orioles, I mean, that just that just would have been a classic. Now, also in my book, there's a, a computer service called What If Sports where you can actually plug the lineups in and see what would have happened. And actually, I, I did that, and I have the uh, the results in my book. And the, the computer says that the Cubs would have beaten the Reds in the playoffs three games out of five. Uh, the playoffs were five mm-hmm. games back then. And that they would have... Uh, you know, beaten Baltimore in a, in a five-game World Series that they would have beaten Baltimore uh, pretty easily. So wow. I'm not going to argue with the computer. I like those results. <laughs> so let's close off by kind of putting an end to this in the sense that the Cubs just got old, right? I mean, that's kind of what happened. They, they threw everything out there, and from there it was kind of a long, uh, a long drought. Yeah, you know, they were, they were getting older in 70. They were even getting a little older in in 69, the Cubs were in their early 30s. The Mets were in their 20s. So the, the Mets were fresher in 69 in August and September than the Cubs were. Plus, the Cubs played all day games back then. And so those guys were just tired. So 70, they were a year older. They actually kept the team intact uh, until 73. So 71, the Cubs didn't really contend. They finished third. Uh, 72, they finished second. Their, their record was actually uh, a little bit better than it was in uh, 1970. And then 73, the Cubs were once again up by about eight and a half games at midseason, and they ended up collapsing and, and ended up uh, being under 500. And that's when the Wrigley family finally realized this team is never going to go anyplace. And so they, they traded the players after the 73 season. Um, the only uh, guys left for 74 from those great teams were Kessinger and Williams, and they ended up uh, trading them too. And so, you know, then the, the Cubs had. Uh, several years in the mid-70s where they were just uh, fighting to stay out of last place. So, uh, But uh, like I said, uh, Sano and Beckert and a, a whole lot of other folks figure if, if they would have won in 69, they would have won in 70, and they might have even won 71, 72, 73. It's just the, the monkey on their back after two collapses, 69 and 70, was just too much for those guys to overcome. And the all-day games, I've heard that for years. And I talked to a couple of guys that played, and they go, you know, you don't think much of it, but it does wear you off over time. And Chicago summers are hot. They really are. And, uh, you know, just being in the, in the hot sun every one of those days. Now, Bill Hands, one of their four starters, he was the one contrarian because he believed that playing at Wrigley Field was an advantage because the visiting teams had come in, They'd go to, after, you know, the game, they'd go to Rush Street in the evening. That was the, the strip where all the bars and nightclubs were. And Hans always felt that, you know, the guys on the other teams he had kind of a tough time after uh, being out on Rush Street and getting up at, uh, you know, 9, 10 o'clock for batting practice the next day. But uh, Hans is the contrarian on that one. Most people feel that uh, all day games, uh, you know, really hurt the Cubs. And, you know, since they've started playing uh, night games in uh, – 1988, uh, they've made the playoffs a lot more than they did, uh, you know, in the several decades before that. So uh, I agree with those who who say that, you know, playing all day, day games just really made the guys tired by the end of the season. Well, it is great to talk with you. William Bike has the book, The Forgotten 1970 Chicago Cubs, Go and Glow, A History of the Chicago Cubs 1970 Season. A great book, as you can tell. And and you should still go ahead, even though we went went month by month through this thing, because the stories just come alive there. And uh, and there's a lot of people that are Cub fans now that don't know what that was like. And boy, I tell you, you want to talk about the frustration. Everybody talks about the losing years, but go back to that. I think that that season is just fascinating. Oh, for sure. And and somebody who read my book... uh, 
you know, who's only about 30 years old, so he wasn't around at the time, he said, oh, I feel like I was there now, now that I read the book. So it's not just scores, but I, I try to, uh, you know, really put you uh, in beautiful Wrigley Field in 1970. Well, you do, and especially some of these personalities are great. I mean, just reading about Joe Pepitone, if you don't remember him, you should read about it. Really interesting guy, and a lot of these guys were just fascinating guys. You know, it's, it's long enough ago that... Uh, Unfortunately, uh, probably a majority of that team has passed away, but uh, Joe is still around. He uh, actually coached for the Yankees and taught Don Mattingly how to play first base. So, uh, you know, Joe isn't in Chicago anymore, but he loves Chicago, and and he's uh, still making his contributions to baseball uh, even to this day. Well, Bill, thanks again, and we'll have you on again to talk baseball or whatever. (laughs) Very much looking forward to it. Thank you, Steve. Follow us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And make sure to like Sports RACX on Facebook. We've got some exciting giveaways coming real soon. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Maggi. I am a non-attorney spokesperson representing a team of lawyers who've helped people that have been injured or wronged. If you've had a revision or removal surgery of a hernia mesh implant after 2008, pay close attention to this message. Hernia mesh manufacturers have recalled some of the mesh material that may have been used in your surgery due to high failure rate. The FDA has even blamed the recalled mesh material for some of the worst of the health issues reported by doctors and patients. If you've had two or more hernia surgeries for the same issue and you're having severe complications, call the legal helpline now. You could receive a free cash award and have your medical expenses covered. And there's no upfront cost to you. They only get paid if you win. So please call now. 800-430-4505 That's 800-430-4505 Want to be a movie producer? Faith Wins is an exciting new screenplay. It's a rags to riches, back to rags, back to riches, onward to redemption story. Written by longtime comedy greats Rich Natoli and John Pate, Faith Wins is the feel-good story of the year, with proceeds of the film to benefit homeless people and homeless animals in Las Vegas. But we need your help to get the movie made. Go to GoFundMe.com and type in Faith Wins in the search box. GoFundMe.com and type Faith Wins in the search box. Homelessness is a big, big problem in the U.S. Let's put the spotlight where it belongs and make a real difference together. Go to GoFundMe.com and type Faith Wins in the search box. We can do this because Faith Wins. Okay, men, this is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're going to go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You gotta dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. I know you won't because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. 
Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. KSHP shows are now available on all of the major podcasting platforms like iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcast, Radiohead, and more. Simply search for KSHP on any of the major platforms and you can listen to past episodes of all your favorite KSHP programs, including Sports Rock and Tours.